Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast over Coffee. This is part 2 of my conversation with Dr. Edward Fisher, cultural anthropologist from Vanderbilt University in Nashville. Please check out part 1 where we talk about the history of coffee and the evolution of third wave coffee culture. In this episode, we focus on the lives of Mayan coffee farmers in Guatemala and the challenges they face and how Dr. Fisher's initiatives have fought malnutrition in the country. Let's get into the conversation. What percentage of the money we pay for a cup of coffee at a coffee shop actually trickles down to the farmers? Uh, uh, not very much at all. Like on a on a cup of coffee, uh, a few cents. Uh, in fact, the most striking thing I saw I saw a, a stat uh, earlier this year uh, that the average tip in a Starbucks. is higher than what the farmers receive for the for the coffee. <laughs> so that's a to me that's a really revealing statistic, right? And maybe we could come up with some kind of a formulation where you could tip the farmer. Uh and so rather than, you know, put that 50 cents but but 25 cents of it to the barista and 25 cents to the farmer or whatever. That would actually be nice because I see these uh candy companies say that, you know, every dollar is going to go to saving endangered species and things like that. So maybe we should come up with something like that. Absolutely. And in coffee you could I you know, it would be a logistical nightmare, but in this day and age and with blockchain technologies where we could trace things back pretty securely, uh I think you could come up with a system that reverted this money back not to just sort of broad oh social programs and farm and producing countries. but okay this this 25 cents is going to go to the farmer who grew your coffee during your research you must have traveled quite a bit to guatemala or probably lived there for a significant period of time what is life like for a coffee farmer in guatemala a great question so let's put aside the coffee oligarchs who i mentioned earlier the ones who really had these huge plantations based on seasonal migrant uh, laborers and they fly around the country in helicopters and kind of rule things so putting them aside your typical small holding uh mayan farmer in guatemala is going to have just a few acres of coffee maybe producing a few hundred pounds a year coffee is generally traded in 40,000 pound container loads uh they would sell to a cooperative uh in order to process their coffee and uh, in my in my research i did uncover that in the in the 90s and 2000s when we had this shift the second wave and then third wave shift to higher quality coffee an easy shorthand in coffee is higher elevation equals higher quality uh coffee if they're stressed a little bit kind of like wine grapes if they're stressed a little bit it produces a denser bean and uh a different flavor profile and so that started uh that created a mini boom in many maya communities in guatemala maya communities that have been historically marginalized in you know the most discriminatory kinds of ways uh imaginable uh in guatemala and so there was this boom of coffee producing more income mayan communities being able to take advantage of, of where they were they were located 
But when I talk about this, I always really stress to my audiences, okay, I'm saying that there are some of these Mayan farmers have been really successful at coffee. That's all relative. Many of these people still, their houses are dirt floor houses. Uh, there is often not indoor plumbing. Uh, they, they, you know, they're, they're thinking about getting a tin roof for their house. Or maybe if they're really successful, being able to save up for a pickup truck so that they could carry their produce uh, to the processing station. So relatively affluent, but by, by, by rural, impoverished Maya standards. Wow. So, so most of them really work for a corporate company and some of them, the, the smaller farmers work for like a cooperative society where they sell their produce. The strong preferences for cooperatives uh, because it's one of those things that's really set up really nicely for cooperatives to process coffee in the wash processing I talked about earlier. You have to have big tanks of water and depulping machines and big patios to dry things out. It requires some serious capital investment. And in, these individual farmers just can't do that. Uh, but coming together as a cooperative, you get 50 or 100 farmers, they can do that. Uh, and so there's a really strong preference for work for these small holding farmers to work through cooperatives. There have been, and let me mention this because it is an important part of the puzzle as well. The, the farmers that have benefited the most from the third wave coffee, and you alluded to this earlier, but third wave coffees, the price of the very finest third wave coffees has just exploded over the last 10 years. So sometimes thousands of dollars a pound, routinely hundreds of dollars a pound, and even at the low end of this, 20 or $30 a pound, where the market rate for commodity coffee right now, it's like $1.25 a pound. So this is a whole other level of magnitude of revenue that is possible. The people who are capturing that really high end of it are not the small holding Mayan farmers that, that I've been talking about. They're, but they're also not the old coffee oligarchy uh, of, of Guatemala either. They're middle-sized producers, uh, mostly not Maya, not indigenous people, uh, many of whom have been able to send their kids to university. Uh, they may speak a little bit of English. They may have traveled to the States. And that middle ground there, again, not crazy rich oligarchs, but not the uh, the small holding Mayan producers either, uh, either, have really allowed them to capture a lot of value in the high end market because they can tell the narrative that the North American consumers want to hear. And they know how, and they have an, enough capital that they can play around with the different processing techniques and it's not going to bust them if it doesn't work out that year. Uh, and so those are the people who have really benefited the most. Yeah, Guatemala is a pretty interesting country. I mean, I think it's mostly Spanish speaking, but apparently there are like 20 to 30 Mayan languages. That's right. Yeah, depending on how you count, 20, 23, 24, maybe even more Mayan languages in Guatemala, this small uh, country. Almost half the population are, 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 are Mayan indigenous peoples. And again, as I, as I said earlier, just by any measure, the most marginalized members of society, life expectancy, education levels, 
access to electricity, participation in national politics is just systematic marginalization for hundreds of years. And talking about coffee farming, has it had any impact on general aspects of climate change and sustainability in Guatemala? Because I noticed that in Brazil, I think the soybean cultivation has really impacted the Amazon forest. So anything of that sort in Guatemala that you noticed? A great question. Uh, Starting to happen. So a lot of Guatemala's main production right now happens at fairly high altitudes. Uh, So the the climatic climate changes haven't been quite as dramatic yet as they have been like with soybeans in, in Brazil and some other crops in other parts of the world. But it is coming. Average temperatures are rising. And so nobody really knows. Guatemala is kind of a chaotic country anyway. There's not great central organization of these things. Uh, And so that particular case, I think Brazil is doing a much better job in sort of planning ahead for what what is coming. It looks like production is going to move higher up uh, as average temperatures rise. yeah, what is that going to mean for these farmers? It really hasn't hit them yet. Uh, but there is a fear that this is is coming down the pike. And not only the temperatures rising, but all the things that go along with it. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, coffee is pretty fickle about where it grows. It's also very susceptible to lots of uh, uh, fungus infections and, and other kinds of infections. And those things are just going to probably get worse. Uh, coffee rust is the big one that really affects coffee trees. And uh, the climatic patterns have already been, uh, been we, we're assuming that that has led to an increase in rust. Are there other effects too, like drug cartels? and Another great question. Yeah, so Guatemala is a... Uh, most of the cocaine that comes into the U.S. actually lands by plane from Colombia or Bolivia or increasingly Ecuador in Honduras and Guatemala. Both. Uh, this so is there is hard. no there is no coca leaf cultivation in Guatemala itself, even though it's I guess terrain wise it's kind of similar to Bolivia or probably. There's a difference between Andes Mountains and, and the mountains in Guatemala. Not as high of an altitude. That's right. Uh, and the, the the South American cartels have pretty much uh, kept a stranglehold on processing as, as well. And so and easier to ship. Right. And so oh, I didn't know there is intellectual property when it comes to cocaine as well. That's interesting. <laughs> Ooh, that's an interesting angle on this. That's right. That is intellectual property that you would want to. So they they ship it by plane, land in rural Honduras and Guatemala, both of which are large parts of the country are controlled by narco gangs. And then it's shipped over land through Mexico uh, to the United States or sometimes submarine or sometimes some of those those crazy things. This is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's interesting. That really started happening when the U.S. in the 90s pretty much shut down the Caribbean. So it used to be these little fast cigar boats just like hopping between the Caribbean islands, bringing cocaine into South Florida. Uh, We pretty much shut that down with 
uh, AWACS radar planes and Coast Guard patrol. And then the cartels just shifted to this other route. Guatemala and Honduras, both kind of narco states anyway, people can be bought off. And so it, it worked. This is a long way of saying that one of the prime areas of production in Guatemala, where the, some of the coffees I like the best come from, Weiwei Tenango, it's, it's narco central. Uh, it's dangerous area. Uh, I have felt uh, hesitant sometimes going around and asking where farms are, like some gringo asking where farms are uh, in that area. It, it can be very dicey. Uh, and so it, it does, it overlaps a little bit. When we've been, and I've gone down to Guatemala a number of times with colleagues from the business school, trying to figure out how we can increase revenue for these very small holding Mayan farmers. And part of the problem that we always run up against is just these logistics things. This is a cash economy in an area that is controlled by, by narcos that are better armed than the military and the police. Uh, and it's just, it's dangerous. Okay, fascinating. Let's move to some of your ventures that you have in Guatemala, especially Mani Plus, and your work with eradicating malnutrition. Uh, would love to hear more about your work in Guatemala and probably is a very good place to end the podcast as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I've been working in Guatemala most of my career and I have uh, worked with uh, alongside uh, Mayan activist in Mayan communities over that that time, uh, and I and and with Mayan farmers very often. And some years ago, I I realized I, I guess I, I should have known, but it, it didn't occur to me. But about ten or twelve years ago, it, it emerged that there's a crisis of malnutrition in Guatemala. So half of all children under five years old are malnourished. That level in rural Mayan communities goes much higher, often 70 or 80 percent in some of these, these Mayan communities. And so I thought, wait, wow, that is, you know, you're just destroying all of this future human potential. Uh, it's, it's, a it's a tragedy in so many ways. So what can we do about this? And I was working with some people from our global health team, and we were doing work in Mozambique at that same time around some HIV clinics. And I noticed that they were handing out, as a malnutrition treatment, a fortified peanut paste. And looking at the labeling, I saw that it was made by a private French company. And I was like, this is crazy. Mozambique, which grows peanuts, is importing, you know, peanut paste from France to give out as a malnutrition treatment. Uh, but I started investigating this further uh, and thought, is there something we can do in Guatemala along those same lines? And as I delved further, I found out that peanuts are native to Latin America. They were probably first domesticated in South America, but in before the Spaniards came in pre-colonial times, the Maya were trading in peanuts. So it's something that was sort of known uh, and that people don't, peanut allergy levels are almost non-existent. It, uh, and so we, we, we started thinking, okay, what about if we did this and locally sourced it. 
so that we're able to provide a new market for Mayan farmers in the very communities that are affected by malnutrition and develop a product that treats the specific kinds of malnutritions that are found in Guatemala. Like with any uh, venture, and I tell this, I sometimes give talks on social entrepreneurship. And I say, to do anything like this, you have to start off being naively optimistic. And so in my, my naive mind, I was like, okay, we fortify some peanut paste, we package it up and we can start distributing it. And wow, that's the, the problem solved. And it turned out that there were just like a thousand little obstacles. And anyone who started a, a new business would appreciate this. It's like everything coming up with the formula uh, ended up taking almost two years because uh, nutrition science is such, we don't know how everything is going to interact. And so we would have to like mix up these formulas and then test them after they had been mixed to see how the peanut oil was affecting the micronutrients that we were putting in. Turns out packaging was this huge nightmare. It's really easy to package liquids. It's really easy to package solid paste. Uh, the pumps get clogged up. It's just a, a whole mess. And that's putting aside sort of licensing and you know approvals from the Ministry of Health and, and all of those kinds of things. I thought it was going to be a you know a year or two project has turned into a you know going on 12 or 13 year project. Uh, but we have been uh, we we were we've been able to to make a run of it. Uh, it is now run by uh, Lily Ebner Stoll, a, a, a colleague who, who came in. I, I, I did run the day-to-day -day operation for a long time. Uh, now uh, Lily has taken it over, uh, 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 and uh, and yeah, it's 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 going strong. So we have distributed uh, this fortified peanut paste in stores and communities uh, throughout Guatemala. Uh, we locally source as much as we can. Not everything we are, we are able to. Some of the, uh, the the micronutrients and things like that we have to import. Uh, but we do see it as a model of locally sourcing local solutions. At the same time, and I really want to be clear about this, uh, it is it's a band-aid. Uh, it's a needed band-aid because we've got malnourished kids right now. The bigger problem is the vastly unequal distribution of land and resources in the country that leads to the kind of poverty that results in chronic malnutrition among among the population like that. And so this is not it's not it's not the silver bullet. It's not the the solution. Uh, but it is it's it's trying to to alleviate the, the problem uh, as as we can. Okay, fantastic. And before we close, as someone who buys coffee from the stores and makes my own in my little mocha, mocha pot, I hear I heard you mention that the first wave of coffee resulted in adulteration and sort of de degradation of the quality of coffee that a, that a consumer could buy from the store. Now, when I go to the store, they market it as 100% Arabica beans. As a, as a coffee shopper, can I safely go and buy one of those without thinking about the quality now? 
<laughs> Great question. Yeah, absolutely. And some people, when I give talks about coffee, some people ask me like, well, what, what kind of coffee should I drink or, or sheepishly confess that they go to Starbucks or whatever. I am of the sense that uh, I think there's there's room for different kinds of coffee. Uh, and so I will drink a convenience store coffee sometimes if I just want something warm and caffeinated and pour a bunch of milk in there and the bitterness in the milk kind of cancel each other out. I also like sometimes having these very high-end coffees that are going to have a new flavor experience. And so this is a roundabout way of answering your question. But I think, first of all, whatever tastes good to us is the good coffee. If you're interested in exploring flavor profiles, the coffee world now is wide open so that you can try all sorts of different tastes. And if you like doing that, absolutely. But no, find what you like. And your standard sort of first wave commodity coffees these days have amped up their game. And so they are better than they would have been in the in the 60s. Um, but it's it, ultimately like with all of these things, there is a... There's a prestige angle, uh, sort of signaling to the world how sophisticated our tastes are. Uh, and that's something, you know, real. And sometimes it leads us to try new things in a good way that sort of expands our horizon. Uh, and there's what, what really just sort of speaks to us on a visceral level, maybe a remembrance from how you grew up or early, whatever, if it speaks to us. And so I, 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 Yes, I bless your your uh, going to the store and 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 just buying the, the arabica beans that speak. Yeah, that is so true because I see some of my friends, you know, go to a place like Blue Bottle Coffee and post stories on Instagram. Nobody's going to post the story of you know them going to a Starbucks or you know buying community coffee off of the store shelf. So, and like one of my guests had earlier mentioned you know, food is very subjective and I think it applies to coffee as well. So uh, whatever tastes good to you is the best coffee. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, yeah. And I think this is the perfect place to end the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Fisher. It was so, so good talking to you. And I think we'll need more sessions to talk about other things in the future. So hope We'd you can come that. back on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real treat. That was Dr. Edward Fisher talking about Mayan farmers in Guatemala. I'll be back with another guest next time. Till then, peace.